Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and chapter 14. And while you're turning there, let me remind those of you who are interested that next week, the class has been invited to lunch at the Lakewood Country Club, and you don't have to be a member, we have a member of our class, and you would have to pay for your lunch. So you can either get breakfast, you can get lunch, or you can get a brunch. So it ranges from six ninety-five to you know, twenty-five, whatever you, and anything in between. So that's next week, and if you want to be, uh, participate in that, please see Mr. Drake Patterson, the distinguished gentleman up there, there you go. or Mr. Fred Diller. Okay, so we are in the Gospel of John, and if you're visiting, last week. Uh, we saw that Jesus is completely, his, he and his disciples have finished eating the Last Supper, and now Jesus is teaching in that setting. Judas has departed, and there's 11 apostles left. And uh, it's obvious that what he's teaching them is causing confusion. They have no idea what he's talking about. It caused us some confusion last week. And there's a reason for that. Because what Jesus is saying is uh, not easy to grasp. But there's one thing that was clear in all of his teaching. And that was the command that we're to love one another. And he said that over and over and over and over again. So they should have gotten that message. But you know something? They weren't interested in that message. They were concerned about peripheral issues. And when it comes to love versus these other issues, these other issues are secondary in comparison. So they go off and ask you all these questions that are tangential. He answers the questions, but not to their satisfaction. Uh, they'll ask him a question. Well, Lord, when are you coming? He'll answer that. That doesn't satisfy them. He says something else. They say something else. They ask him another question. He answers that, and that doesn't satisfy them. So they're very confused. And so now, when we get to verse 8 of chapter 14, we see that the apostles are still asking questions. And they're still confused. For example, in verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That'll satisfy us. Jesus gives him an answer. Guess what? Doesn't satisfy him at all. So guess what Jesus does? He comes back in verse 15. Here's what he says. Love. Look, love. See that word love in there? He talks about love again. Then in verse uh, 21, he says, There's our official weather forecast right there. So, in verse 21, he says this. You got it off there yet? Is that going over our PA system? Okay, it was just on our phone. For those who are listening by the radio. <laughs> so, anyway, he says love. You see, they ask a question, they're not satisfied, and he comes back to the issue of love again. Then in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who what? Loves me. He comes back to love again on another time. Then in verse 22, look at this. Judas, another apostle, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it? They ask a question. And guess what? Jesus comes back again in verse 23 and 24. And look what he says. If anyone what? Loves me. You see that? Look at verse 24. He who does not what? Love me. And that's how this thing goes. You look down at verse 28. He comes back to love another time. He says, you've heard me said, uh, say of me, I'm going away and I'm coming back. You, If you love, look at that. You see that love? 
And then look at verse 9. As the Father loved me, I love you. Look at verse 10 of chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Look at that. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment that you love one another. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one. And this section ends at verse 17. These things I command you that you what? How many times do you think the word love is mentioned in this section? Last week and this week and what we'll cover the next time. It's mentioned about one-third of the verses that are mentioned deal with love. And so the apostles want their questions answered, but their questions are not their answers to their questions are not satisfying them. So now we just had another phone that went off. Make sure you you silence your phone. Is that my phone? Okay, so if I ask you what really is the most important thing that we should come away with and the apostles should come away with in this discussion at the Last Supper, what would you say it is? It would be love, wouldn't it? But that's not, that, they don't want to hear that. And guess what? We don't want to hear it either. <laughs> because love involves sacrifice. Love is thinking of others more than yourself. We've heard the old, you know, formula, the acrostic joy, J-O-Y, what is it? Jesus, others, yeah, you're last. We don't like, well, we like it, sounds good, but we don't want to practice that. And so they want to know all the answers to their questions from this last meal. So last week we finished in chapter 14 in verse 5 and 6, and here's what it says, and this will sort of bring us up into our passage today. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how... And how can we know the way? That's a question. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. So that's how we ended last week. Now we're going to pick up at verse 7. Okay, this is where we're starting this week. Jesus said, if you had known me, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Okay, so let's take this verse apart a little bit. So let's look at the first sentence. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So the implication is, since you don't know the Father, guess what? You don't know me? Isn't that amazing? They've been with Him for three years, but they don't know Him. And they have a perception of Jesus, but it's the wrong perception of Jesus. They think they know Him, but they don't know him because if they'd known him, well, who else would they have known? They would have known the Father. Many of us have a false perception of Jesus. We make Jesus in our own image. And as a result of that, we really don't know the Father in any intimate way. Now notice in verse 7, look at the verb there. If you had known me. You see that? That's past tense, isn't it? Okay. Now Jesus speaks of something in the present tense. Look what else he says in verse 7. And from now on, from now on, from the present onward, you know him. That is the Father. There's going to come a point very soon where you will know the Father, even though you hadn't known him in the past. Things are going to change. Why are they going to change? Because Jesus is going to die. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to go back to the Father and he's going to reveal the Father to them in a very special way. And then he adds this at the end of verse 7. Sort of like a, by the way, what else he says in verse 7. And you've seen him. 
You won't know him, but guess what? In the future, you'll know him, but guess what? You've already seen him. Now, when Jesus says that, Philip pipes up. Because he's totally confused. And look what Philip says in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is sufficient for us. Now what did Jesus just say at the end of verse 7? You've seen him. And what Philip say? Show us to him. Show, show us the Father. And then we'll be satisfied. In other words, we don't, he, he doesn't know what he's talking He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. He's totally confused. And uh, so he says, you know, pull the curtain back from heaven. Let us see the Father, and that will satisfy us. So give us a vision of the Father, and that will satisfy us. Philip, in my opinion, is without a clue. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Now, if I were Philip, putting myself back there, and I was a good, a good Philip, instead of a confused Philip, I would have said, Jesus, I believe what you said. I've seen the Father. I don't understand what you said, but I just accept your word on it, right? That's what we probably would have done. Uh, but that's not what Philip does. He's totally confused, without a clue. And Jesus is totally exasperated when he hears Philip asking the question. If Jesus just said, I've shown you the Father, you've seen him, Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus is beside himself, and look what he says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, and I'm going to put Philip's name in there, Philip? If I've been with you so long, and yet you've not known me? If I've been with you so long, and yet you've not known me? Now back in verse 7, Jesus said, If you've known me, you would have known the Father. If you had known me, you would have known the Father. Isn't that how verse 7 opens? Okay, look how verse 9 opens. Have I been with you so long, and you've not known me, Philip? And so, what does this indicate? That they what? They don't know Jesus. Because if they had known Jesus, they would have known the Father, and they actually would have seen the Father. So look what he says in, in the verse 9. He who has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. So Philip, how can you say, what in the world got you to say, show us the Father? Jesus and the Father are so inseparable that if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what the Father's like, guess who you have to look at? You have to look at Jesus, because the Father looks a lot like Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't the Father. Jesus is the Son. Is that right? But like Father like son. So if you want to know what the father's like, all you have to do is look at the son. Because Jesus is like the father. He is the son and he represents the father very perfectly here on earth. Okay? So when you say, if I said to you, what is God the father like? You would have to say what? He's like Jesus. If your image of God is different than Jesus, you've got the wrong image of God. If you see God as someone that's vengeful, angry, is that what Jesus looks like? No, you got a wrong concept of God. What does Jesus look like? What's he been talking about this whole time? What's will the one-third of all the verses talk about? Love. What? And this is the Gospel of John. Over in 1 John, he writes, God is love. Okay? 
So Jesus reveals the Father, and when we look at Jesus, what we actually see is love. For God so loved, and Jesus loves, and we are to love. We are to imitate Jesus and the Father. Now look at verse 10. Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Don't you believe that, Philip? I guess, what would you say if you were Philip? I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? You're in God and God's in you. Philip doesn't know what he's talking, what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is saying that the relationship between Jesus and the Father is so close that they it's talked about, the relationship is talked about as one being in one and one being in the other. They act in coordination with one another hand in hand in that sense. Okay? And then when you look at the second part of verse 10, he says, the words that I speak to you, this is Jesus, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. So here we see two terms. Word and works. You see that in verse 10? Word, words plural, and works plural. The source of those words and those works are the Father. Jesus never says anything that his Father doesn't first reveal to him. And Jesus doesn't do anything but what his Father tells him to do. So the Father is the source of the words and the work. So if you watch Jesus, you're actually going to be seeing what God's doing. What the Father's doing right through Jesus. Because Jesus does the Father's bidding. Now look at verse 11. And this is a command to Philip. Believe me. Take me at my word, will you? That I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And if you can't take me at my word, believe me for the sakes of the works themselves. So, uh, we have two choices. We can believe that Jesus reveals the Father by accepting Jesus' words. By faith. If you can't do that, then believe that Jesus reveals the Father based on the works. Take him in his word, we call that faith. You can't do that based on his works. That's what you see. Seeing is what? Believing. So, see, it's either believing before you see, just take Jesus in his word, or if you can't do that, at least see and then believe. And so that's what Jesus is telling Philip. Philip went, now what was Philip's question? Show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. And guess what Jesus said? No, 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 that's not how it works. Either take me at my word, my faith, or if not, look at the works. And you'll see that the Father's the source of all this. See? And then he makes this promise in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll also do. This is one of the hard verses in all the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. In other words, the disciples will duplicate Jesus' works. And his works are his miracles and the different things that he does. And then he goes on to say, in fact, verse 12, middle of verse 12, in fact, 
and greater works than these he will do. Because I go to my Father. So, now we see that we're going to do the works that Jesus does. In fact, we're going to do greater works. On what basis are we going to be able to do those works? What does it say there at the end of verse 12 or 13? Because I do what? I go to my Father. Do you see that? You're going to do greater works. Why? Because I what? Go to my Father. How will that cause us to do greater works? Because when he goes to his Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be empowered to do these kinds of works. Now, what in the world does greater works mean? How can we do greater works than Jesus? Is he talking about you're going to do greater works in quality or in quantity? Now, I know Jesus has raised people from the dead. I don't think anybody in this classroom has raised anybody from the dead. Supernatural. So I guess in quality, we're not doing greater works. So what in the world does it mean that we're going to do greater works than Jesus? Well, one of the ways, I believe, is that the works that we do are works that are being done under the new covenant. When Jesus did his works, what covenant was in place? The old covenant. So in this sense, it's greater. It's kingdom works. It's pointing to the future kingdom. Also, when Jesus went out and he said, come and follow me, how many followed him? At the end of his life, how many people are following him? Eleven of the apostles are following him, and a few women are following him. And, you know, if he has, you know, a hundred people following him, that's it. If you looked at his ministry based on who followed him, it would seem like a failure. And, but he worked for three years at that. Well, how many people are following him now? Yeah, millions and a billion and a half people are following him now. See, our work is a reaping work. And we have reaped in a harvest. And in that sense, that's a greater work than Jesus has done. So he says, we can do these greater works. And the reason we can do these greater works is because he's going to the Father. His time on earth limited the amount of work that the apostles could do, in a sense. They do far greater works after Jesus goes back to heaven than when he was on earth the first time. So he makes that promise. Now he makes another promise in verse 13. And whatever you ask, he says, in my name, look at this, I will do it. There's the second promise. Once he goes back to heaven, Whatever we ask in his name, he will do it. Notice who does it. Jesus is still doing the works. You see that? He's doing it through us, but he's the one that's doing it. See? Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. What's the purpose of all this? Look at the end of verse 13. So that my Father may be what? glorified in the Son. So when we do something great for the Lord, whether it's sharing the gospel or whether we pray for somebody who's sick and they get healed, it's actually Jesus that's doing it through us. And as a result, God gets glorified. So all the glory goes to God. Now, when it says pray in His name, it means that we have to... We can't ask for something that's out of character with Jesus. 
So if I ask for something that doesn't fit in with Jesus' character, it's not going to get done. He's not going to do it. Any more than if you went and said, knocked on a drug house, and say, uh, I'm coming in the name of Allen Street, uh, sell me some meth, sell me some heroin. You know? That's not... You'd be asking the wrong name, you know? If you ask God for that. Lord, I need some heroin in Alan's name. Is God going to give it to you? Why not? Because you know that's not what I... You can't ask that in my name. It's not going to be done. And so, it's the same way here. Is that You can only ask in accordance with the character of Jesus. So that was verse, what? 13, and then verse 14 says... If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. That's simply a repeat. Some translations, that verse is omitted, by the way. But it's basically a repeat. And then we have a caveat. And this is where we get back to love. Look what he says in verse 15. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Now notice a couple things. Notice that love is connected to obedience. Notice that love is connected to morality. See that? Uh, and this is the key to having our prayers answered. So, if we say we love him, but we don't obey him, then we're liars. That's what John says over in his first epistle. If we say we love him, and we don't obey him, and then we pray to him, do we think we're going to get anything answered? No. So love is the key in getting the things answered and doing these works that Jesus predicts. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we have to keep his commandments if we expect him to answer us. If I have a child that's a rotten brat, use, use the street language for how I would consider some of my kids when they acted like rotten brats. And they said, Daddy, do this. Am I going to do it for them when they've been a rotten brat? Some of you are saps. I want you to know that. <laughs> You know, you remember Dobson when he talked about something called tough love? Remember that? Look, if my kids are obeying me, I know they're loving me because I'm giving them these commandments that are for their benefit. When they do ask for something, they'll do anything for them. But how about if they're rotten brats? So you haven't gotten that one yet. I'm not going to do it for them. That's just how it was. And I say, no, do it yourself. Go ahead and raise the money yourself. You're a rotten brat. <laughs> Finally, I got you the lamp. Anyway, you saw my failure there as a father. Right? <laughs> oh, God, that not go like that. Chapter verse 16. And I will pray to the Father. Verse 16. And I will pray to the Father. Now, wait a second. In verse 13, notice who's doing the praying. That's us. We ask Jesus, and he says, I'll do something. But in verse 16, notice who's doing the praying. Jesus says, I will pray to the Father. And so we have us praying, and we have Jesus praying. We're praying in verse 13. Jesus is praying in verse 16. And in the middle, guess what? If you love me, love is the link between us praying and Jesus praying and getting prayers answered. Obedience and love is the linchpin to all this. So here's what he says. I'll pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. Some translations say comforter. Some translations say advocate. It's a legal word. It's an advocate. 
somebody who uh, stands up for another individual. So he says he will give you another advocate. Well, if there's another advocate, guess what? There was one before that, wasn't there? And Jesus is the first advocate. He is the one who cares for the apostles, comforts the apostles, helps the apostles, does whatever is necessary for the apostles. He will give you another comforter in verse 16. And here's the purpose. Here's the purpose. That he may abide with you forever. And we don't know if that means the Father or whether the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. The Holy Spirit here is the Comforter, as you will see. Uh, but let's say it's the Holy Spirit. So he will give you another Comforter who will abide with you, reside with you, take up permanent residence with you forever. Now, how long has Jesus been with them so far? Three years. Guess what? That's great. When you have Jesus around for three years, you can do whatever he commands you to do. He can give you the authority to go out and heal somebody or cast a demon out. But you need something that's going to be with you forever, and it's the Holy Spirit. This is why when what we do is greater. And that's it. So, he'll be with us forever. Okay? There'll never be a time when he's not with you. Okay? He's available to help you. He's an advocate. available to help you whenever you need that help. Now he identifies this helper or advocate. Verse 17. He calls him the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is the advocate. Notice in verse 16 he says that God will give you another helper. That means the Holy Spirit is God's gift to the church. The Holy Spirit is a gift us. It's a gift to us at the request of the Son. See verse 16? I will pray to the Father, the Father will answer my prayer, and He will give you the Holy Spirit. So here we see that this is an answer to the Son's prayers on our behalf, and we're going to be given the Holy Spirit who's going to be with us forever. And then He goes on and says in verse 17, Whom the world cannot receive, Because it neither sees him or knows him. The world has no ability to see the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you see the Holy Spirit? How can you see a spirit? How can you see the wind? Can you see the wind? I haven't seen the wind. But I can look out my window and I can see what? See the results of the wind. See. And when God's Spirit moves... We can see the results of the wind, but notice what it says in verse 17, whom the world cannot receive. Notice it doesn't have the ability to receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have the ability to see or know Him. So when God does something great through the Holy Spirit, a great miracle, let's say somebody gets miraculously healed. And we say, praise the Lord, God's done something. Guess what? The world can't see that. The world will explain that away. The world will just give you a natural explanation. They don't give God credit for any of that. They don't see that as the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is invisible to them. They're just looking at one dimension. But he says in verse 17, But you know him, because he dwells with you. And in the future will what? Be in 
you. And so what we see here is that when Jesus goes back to heaven, he's going to pray, and God's going to send as a gift to us the Holy Spirit, and it happens on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and energizes the church, and on the first day, 3,000 people saved just like that. Something far greater than Jesus ever did. It's an amazing thing. And then you see Peter going out, and they heal people, and they do all these things. And not only just one guy, not only just Peter, not only just the apostles, we see Philip doing it, we see Barnabas doing it, we see Stephen doing it. You know, it's just amazing how it's being multiplied and it's greater than even what Jesus did when he was on earth. Now Jesus says this in verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. When I leave, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you on your own. Verse 18. I will come to you. I will come to you. Now we get into tricky territory. What in the world does it mean? I'm not going to leave you, 11 orphans, you 11, I will come to you. What does that mean? They get very tricky because back in chapter 14 and verse 3, look what Jesus said. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again. He talked about coming in verse 3. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Are these one and the same coming? Are these different comings? Is one a second coming? One a coming when he sends the Holy Spirit? What in the world is he talking about? This is a question that has has, uh, caused great debate among scholars for 2,000 years. And rather than me try to answer it and get you mad at me, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> he says, I'm going to come to you. But when we read the rest of the passage, I think it'll make sense. Okay? I don't have to say any more. We're going to the text. Just do the speaking. Ready? Watch this in verse 19. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. Notice there's that world. The world who can't see the Holy Spirit. The world can't see miracles because it's blinded. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. And sure enough, guess what happens? Jesus dies, they put him in the tomb, and he's raised. Did the world ever see him after that? They said, where is it? They must have stolen his body. You can't find him anywhere. Did the disciples see him? Didn't Mary see him? Oh yeah, they saw him, but did the world see him? No, he's, he was gone. And then he went to heaven. Did the world ever see him again? No, they never saw him again. So notice what he says in verse 19. A little while longer, the world will see me no more. They couldn't find him. They hunted for him, couldn't find him. But you, what? Will see me. And did they see him at the resurrection? Yes, they saw him at the resurrection. But they're also going to see him another way, as we're going to check this out. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Why will you see me? Here it is, the end of verse 19. Because I live, you will live also. Now, is he talking about resurrection at the second coming? Is he talking about you're going to be born again and you're going to have the equipment to see me? Well, we're going to find out what all this means. So look at verse 20. At that day, what day? Watch. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now what day? It seems that the day is when he goes back to the Father. 
When I go back to the Father, and I think it means when he sends the Holy Spirit, the Father sends the Holy Spirit, suddenly everything will become crystal clear and we'll realize that God is in Jesus, Jesus is in God the Father, and they're both in us and we're in them in some way that doesn't, he doesn't explain yet, but he will. Now look what he says in verse 21. He comes back to the love again. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So if you say you love him, you don't keep his commandments, that's, you're not really a follower of Jesus. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. Now watch this. And I will what? Show myself to him. I'll manifest myself to him. So it seems to be as we love God and we obey God and Jesus... He will reveal Himself to us. We will see Him. Just as we can see the Holy Spirit and the results, and we recognize it's the Holy Spirit, we will see Jesus. He will manifest Himself to us. That's what the text seems to indicate. So it's not when He comes back, it seems to be when He goes away, He sends the Holy Spirit, and we're obedient, then He's going to manifest Himself to us. He's going to show Himself to us. Okay. So, at that point, of course, another apostle pipes up. Right? And look who he is in verse 22. Judas. We're not talking about Iscariot here. This is a different Judas. There were two Judases amongst the twelve apostles. Judas. Not Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or sell yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to do that? Now, what should he have said? If Jesus said, if you obey me and you love me, I will show myself to you, what should this Judas have said? Oh, Lord, we take it at your word, okay. Is that what he says? Come on, Jesus, tell us how it's going to happen, all this good. See, he wants, he wants information. He's not satisfied with Jesus' answer. They never are. They're actually confused over Jesus' answer. So in verse 23, Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, now he, but he's going to give him an answer, and this should satisfy him. If anyone loves me, he will, what? Keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we're going to come and make our home with him. Now look at verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my word. My word. So the mark or the evidence of a disciple is that we keep Jesus' words. We obey Jesus. And when we do, the Father and the Son come and reveal themselves to us through the Holy Spirit, the other couple. He's not going to leave us in order. And then Jesus adds this final phrase. The word which you hear, what I'm telling you right now, it's not mine. It's not my word. But it's the Father who says it. What I'm saying to you, Judas, comes straight from the throne of God. And you can thank Him. You don't have to understand it all. All you have to do is love. And if you love, the Father and I will come and manifest ourselves to you. And you'll recognize us when we do. So, the disciples here ask a lot of questions. They get a lot of answers. 
None of the answers satisfy them. Instead of accepting Jesus and His Word, they just keep asking more questions. When in reality, what they should be doing is saying, Jesus has talked about love an awful lot of times. And I guess they're saying that the one command that we keep getting over and over again is what? That we should love Him and love the Father and love each other. And so, when we look at these passages, which are very hard passages, I really think chapter 14 is one of the hardest chapters in John's Gospel. But I don't need to understand any of chapter 14 except one. One thing. What's the emphasis? Love. I can understand that. I might not be able to figure all the other stuff out, but I can figure one thing out. We're to love each other. And we're to love God by obeying Jesus' word. And when we do... Things will take care of themselves because he went to the Father and he sent the Spirit, and we'll recognize God when he moves in our midst. Amen? The next passage starts at verse 25, and that's what we'll pick up next time. Lord, we thank you that uh, no matter how dull we are, no matter how preoccupied we are, no matter what the situation is, None of us in this class should have missed the key component of this. <coughs> We're to love each other. Put you first, obey you. Put others above ourselves, love them, be sacrificial, be charitable, be compassionate, compassionate. Be giving. And when we do that, we have the assurance, your word. Your inheritance. We thank you, Lord, for this passage today in Christ's name. Amen.